Hi, I'm Mick Steely. I'm the host of the Kinetic Collective podcast, powered by Play. Today's guest is Dr. Mark Booth. Mark is currently employed as the head of sports science at the Manly Sea Eagles. He has 15 years experience as a strength and conditioning coach, including working with the New South Wales Police Force, Parramatta Reels, New South Wales Women's AFL, and Manly Women's Basketball. In addition to this, he also has seven years of experience as a sports scientist and sports dietitian, covering two national rugby league teams. Mark has also worked as a strength coach and sports dietitian with national athletes in rowing, boxing, and weightlifting. He's also worked with national level para athletes in rowing and cycling. Join me today as we learn more about Mark Booth. Boothy, mate, what's your story? Talk me through it. There you go, Mick. Um, oh, I guess so. My my journey in sport began uh, when I went back to university uh, to do undergrad exercise science back in 07 or 08 or something like that. Um, started out just doing some volunteer SNC with um, Manly Women's Basketball and with Sydney Uni and New South Wales Women's AFL. Um, from there, started working with the Eels in the juniors, uh, just doing, again, S&C. Finished the uh, bachelor, did a master's of um, dietetics and a master's of strength and conditioning at the same time while I moved up to 20s with Para and ran the entire junior S&C program. Uh, from there, I finished those two, started a... PhD and a master's in clinical ex phys and rehab uh, and moved to the Bulldogs. Spent a couple of years. My roles at the Bulldogs were more sports science based by this stage. I was uh, heavily gathering data for a, a PhD in their junior development program. Spent a couple of years with the Doggies with uh, Desi Hasler and Donnie Singe. And um, then from there, uh, when things went a little bit pear-shaped, uh, moved into New South Wales Police, uh, into S&C and rehab with, uh, with the police force in a fantastic program called Recon, as I'm sure you know well, Mick. Um, was getting towards the pointy end of the PhD at that stage when I uh, got married and then had a, um, a series of uh, annoying phone calls from Messrs Singe and Hasler on my honeymoon. Um, telling me they were going back to Manly and um, wanted me back in the NRL. Uh, made me a, an offer I couldn't say no to. So in 2019, when Desi took over the realms, reigns again, I uh, went back into the NRL. In the last three years, I've been as the uh, head of sports science with the Seagulls. Finished off that pesky PhD thing and um, here we are. Put that to the side. It's all done and dusted. Yep. So, mate, what was your childhood like? Where'd you grow up? Um, I'm a Westie. I grew up uh, southwest Sydney, Ingleburn. Uh, theoretically, I should have been a, a Maggie's slash West's Tigers fan, but I was um, I was about five when Peter Sterling and Brett Kenny were teaching everyone how to play football. Uh, so I've always been a lifelong para fan. Um, just pretty typical public school uh, education. A uh, bit of a, a lout in the classroom, um, was always the bright student but disruptive in class on the report card type thing. Doesn't apply um, himself, looks out yeah, the windows. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> finished the, uh, finished the, the HSC but then just went into, uh, I actually worked in a heavy metal record store for a few years 
Uh, and then when I had enough of that, I went backpacking for about five years in my early 20s, traveling Europe. Nice. Did you play any sports growing up? Mate, I did. I played all the school sport and stuff like that. Bit of AFL, bit of league. Um, I'm too slow. I was always fit enough and strong enough, but I'm just too slow. Like little blokes can run rings around me. I turn like a fridge. Blaming genetics there? Yeah, yeah, partially. Well, yeah, there's no gifted athletes in my family. None at all. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Um, what life lessons are sort of, you know, you mentioned you work in a heavy metal store and I've probably come from that, your love of the uh, the death metal and some of the weird bands that you listen to. My word, I, I harassed the store manager for months and months on end until he till he gave me a job. Um. <laughs> I don't know. Letting you loose is like letting a kid in a candy store of you in a death metal store. Up and I don't know how that would go. Mate, what life lessons do you think you sort of got before you became a coach that have influenced what you do as a coach? Oh, because when I immediately left school um, – all of those sorts of early roles before I decided to pack up and, and then even go backpacking was um was like customer service roles and hospitality and bit of security work and things like this. So um, being able to relate to sort of nearly anyone from the, the drunk and obnoxious lawyer through to um, just the, the sort of typical tradie, all my mates are your, your average tradie type bloke. So I guess being able to sort of find some sort of common ground and relate to anyone, no matter what their walk of life is, uh, is really just crucial. Um, I, uh, during my time backpacking, I was, uh, I did hospitality work. I did security work. I taught English in Germany for a couple of years, um, to the Germans and, uh, and, and learned a whole different, pretty much learned their language and just a whole different way of life. So, and the thing about when you, when you pack up your bags and decide you're going to go to the other side of the world for about five years by yourself, you learn to be resilient and you learn to be independent no matter what. Yeah. That is a decent life lesson though. So you spent five years backpacking, mainly yeah, around man. Europe? Uh, I lived in England for nearly three and then I lived in Germany for nearly two and I think at last count I hit something like twenty six countries in my um in my little holiday sojourns. I'd literally work through winter and the other months, then I'd pack the bags up and I'd go travelling around another corner of the continent uh, till the money ran out and I had to go back and find a job again. <laughs> no, that's a good way to do it. Good way to live your life. Good way to experience life as a young fella too. Oh, I'm certainly glad I did it now, mate. Or did it then, given the the world climate now. <laughs> Yeah, let's not go through those at the moment. Yeah. We're in lockdown. <laughs> now, you mentioned you played sports as a kid and obviously, you know, being a member of a, of a high-performance unit, what are some of the attributes of the best teammates that you've had in a high-performance unit? As in my work colleagues or the athletes? Oh, you can put it. Go for a bit of both. Okay. Um, the best, clearly the best, the single best attribute of an athlete is coachability. Um you know, they, they range so widely from the hardest worker who just he just doesn't quite have the the sporting nous or the natural talent that's going to take him all the way. And you see him break his balls day in, day out, and he just he's just never going to be that 300-game player or, or whatnot. 
Um, and then you've got the the ultra ridiculously talented um, superstars that, that won't do a single thing. Uh, it was a pretty famous one at Para back in the day while I was there. Yep, yep. Who um, who make it all the way, and and they that it's not due to hard work at all. It's it's due to. But from the practitioner's point of view, whether you're the S and C, whether you're the sports scientist running all the testing, whether you're the dietitian giving them um, consultation on their, their poor diets or whatnot. It's just the coachability, the, the ability to absorb the information and put it into practice. Um, a lot of that comes down to, to the relationship you establish with them, obviously, your ability to, to build rapport with them. But uh, even some guys, you can build good rapport with them, but they're still not very coachable. Uh, in terms of the um, the, the colleagues, um, look, it just comes down to trust. Simple as that. In a, in a such a cutthroat environment like elite sport, anyway, um, you've got to be able to trust each other to have each other's back. There's going to be times where there's hand grenades being thrown around left, right, and centre um, because you've got different departments, different opinions uh, on approaches to things. Um, but things things get nasty and self-destruct when um, people are always looking to appropriate blame rather than looking for um, a solution to whatever problems you might be be trying to find. Um, on that point. note, that would be why the program I worked with the police was the best that I've ever seen is because I never saw any element of finger-pointing, blame game, ego or anything like that. Whenever an issue arose, it was literally workshopped as a bunch of professionals, uh, getting a bunch of ideas together and then come up with the best solution to the problem. But unfortunately, it's not that way in sport. You have plenty of people whose uh, own desire for self-preservation and self-advancement um, trumps any sort of team motivations that they may have. Uh, and and once you have a couple of those guys in your organisation, it just brings everything else apart. They start to undermine other people, and then the the trust starts to erode between departments, and it it just becomes quite a nightmare, really. Um, so trust has to be the number one, and to an extent, you've all got to have a bit of a thick skin and a sense of humour. Yeah, sense of humour goes a long way. Well, you've yeah. given us the best um, impacts of a teammate. What about the worst? You know, so you sort of touched on it. Now, what would be the attributes of the one of the worst teammates that you've seen, both from a you know an athlete, I guess, and the, you know, if you've had staff or, or what you think? Maybe probably across both staff, of them, right? narcissism's number one. Yep. Um, I, I've always thought that, and I've, I've done a lot of work on the side, just with my own sort of private stuff with uh, elite rowers, boxers, um, para athletes, these sorts of people, and. I've always thought regardless of whether it's an individual athlete or a team sport athlete, to reach the very pinnacle of what you're doing, you have to have an element of narcissism. You have yep. to. There has to be an element of your own self-ego that drives you because you've got to want to be the best and beat everyone else. And if you don't have a healthy dose of that, then you're probably that guy or girl that makes it to the sub-elite level and doesn't make it any further than that. Um, but there's a there's a critical critical mass with that in, in an athlete where beyond that it becomes destructive, especially in a team environment, to his teammates around him. And we all would have seen examples of that from time to time. And the same is said for, uh, even magnified for the actual staff behind uh, 
the scenario if if you've got people whose only whose only interest is their own self promotion and their own um, self aggrandizement then it it just it becomes toxic to to other other people in the environment um, and and it trumps all of the the sense and logic behind your processes and procedures when people are only thinking about what they want and what they want to do and how they think things should be done because you're always going to disagree with each other at time from time to time on what's the best pathway forward for this particular scenario or this particular scenario. But in a good working environment, you all sit there, you all listen to each other, you all collaborate, and then you come up with a common pathway. In a bad environment, you all sit there, you go through that process, and then one or two people go off on their own way behind closed doors, have a whole series of other conversations and undermine the process because it wasn't the process that they they believe in. They wanted or they had enough input um, to. Yeah. Well, or it just it just wasn't done their way. Simple as that. Now, now yeah. as a sports scientist and having obviously the, the stuff that you've done in and around rugby league and, and, and trying to, you know, manage loads and all those sorts of things, where do you draw the line between helping people and showing them how to help themselves? How do you strike that balance? Especially, <sighs> especially as a sports scientist, especially, you know, well, I don't think there's too much difference between doing it as a sports scientist or an S&C, really. Obviously, your number one role in, in either of those spaces, you're really an educator, right? Um, you're trying to educate the athlete on, on as you say, what's best for them and what, what's the best pathway and whether it's an S&C, this is the best way to do that exercise or these are the reasons we're doing that exercise. Um, it's the same with a sports scientist. For, yeah, from time to time, you'll have to... You, you might be, in terms of load management or something like that, you might be pulling an athlete back going, oh, look, I know you feel fine. I know you want to uh, participate in this entire session and I know you want to do X, Y, and Z, but the reality of it is that <clears throat> here's four different markers that we have that are telling us that we're placing you at an unnecessary risk. And then, I guess, just indicating what's, what's the trade-off, so making them see that, as much as you you highlight a risk if you've identified one, I think from time to time you've also got to highlight, well, what's it going to cost you if we do pull you out of this session or even just these five drills? Yeah. Um, is that really going to affect your game on the weekend? And usually, particularly in that scenario, the answer won't be a yes because if you're just modifying a particular session and certain drills, then clearly what you're leaving them in is likely to be the most important stuff to the the game on the weekend or to their, their sort of long-term development. It's got the highest so return of investment. Yeah, it's literally just I think too many people get hung up too much on focusing on the risks and the and the doom and gloom rather than just pointing out some some simple logic that, okay, if we do have to modify you here, don't worry. It doesn't mean you're going to have a shit game on the weekend or you're going to miss that competition. In all likelihood, by doing this, you're probably going to perform better on the weekend um, because we're still letting you do X, Y, and Z here. Yep. Um, that That's a little bit of a different conversation if it's, if it's sort of pulling someone out of a game entirely or something like that because it's always hard to... Um, to get an athlete to agree, especially if they're not completely symptomatic with an injury or something like that as to why they can't participate in a, in a game or in an event. But that sort of scenario is pretty rare anyway. Yeah. 
Now, as your time as a sports scientist, obviously you've been around for a while, been to a few clubs. I know you've been with one coach for a particular amount of time, but have you found that a better ex- acceptance of sports science and the, and the role that a sports scientist does from coaches? Or, you know, what was the, the probably the hardest battle in the start you think it might have been that you've had to overcome? Coaches, coaches vary wildly. Um, again, not naming names, there are, there are some coaches... And this doesn't just go for rugby league. This goes for some of those other individual sports that I've been involved with. Um, they vary wildly. You'll get some coaches that are just, there. there isn't enough numbers in the world for them to look at. There isn't enough data in the world for them to look at. And there aren't enough toys to have in their toy box. Uh, they can be like four-year-olds sometimes with the newest gizmos and gadgets. And sometimes your conversations with them are around no, we don't need that. It's pointless. It's not going to offer us anything at all. It's a waste of money. Yeah. Um, and then you get the other guys who absolutely it does not matter how much evidence there is to support a particular method, whether it be a training method, whether it be a method of data collection and analysis or a, a particular tool, uh, they just won't buy into it. They're, they're very old school in their beliefs, whether it be rowing, rugby league or whatnot. Um <clears throat> And you, there's just no amount of convincing. I think my gut tells me that that's probably the dying breed and maybe in another generation's time there are very few of those coaches left. Um, but they're definitely still out there in abundance at the moment. What activities make Mark Booth lose track of time? <laughs> definitely listening to metal and playing guitar. Um, they'd probably be the number one or two. Yeah. And what uh, sort of music you play on a guitar? You sing oh, the love songs? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ballads, mate. <laughs> <laughs> now, if we couldn't find you doing those sorts of things and you're not out coaching, you're not listening to death metal, what other hobbies do you have? Where would you be found? Oh, walking the dogs. Although the missus probably says I won't be walking them, I'll just be playing with them in the backyard. Or um, Certainly... Um, watching movies or um, documentaries or um, a lot, lots of different TV shows grab my, um, grab my attention. Yeah. Uh, and, and ideally, if we're not in a world of lockdown, um, for some reason, having beers like Muppets, beers with Muppets like you, Nick. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, I've actually seen the list of doc- documentaries that you watch. I'm actually seriously concerned that you are a serial killer. Could you, <laughs> you seem to like those sorts of really disturbing. Goes hand in hand with listening to the death metal, doesn't it? Oh, I, I, don't, so. I don't mind the odd serial killer doco. I will freely admit that. Um, and the TV shows that go with them. Um, I'm, I'm also quite prone to just the, the other sort of true crime ones um, or, or your popular uh, making, making a murderers and all those um the stories where they follow along with a, a court case where the justice system has botched it entirely and those sorts of things are pretty fascinating. Surely you as an ex-cop find that pretty fascinating, Mick. Oh, well, no, it's something you like to leave behind, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> if in 150 years science and the internet have failed us and all that's left is a book about your life, what's the title? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> um I'd like to think it would be something like um, worked hard, uh, good bloke, 
a bit odd. A bit, a bit odd. I agree with that. <laughs> now, what would be the blurb for that book? So your book's called Worked Hard, Good Blake, and A Bit Odd, but what's the blurb? Um, How are you selling this book to me? <laughs> uh, follow the, the tale of a bloke who had an eternal quest for knowledge, um, was was uh, often misunderstood as uh, just a down-to-earth um, working-class fella, um, but had an... Uh, an unnatural fetish for serial killer documentaries and death metal music. <laughs> Beautiful. Good answer. Good answer. All right. What do you think is the most important thing you've learned in your life? Tell the truth. Be honest. Yes, because it doesn't, it doesn't matter what the scenario is, what the outcome is. There's always going to be people who don't want to hear what you're about to tell them, whether that's your fault or their fault. Uh, and if you don't, then you're building a house of cards anyway because yeah. eventually that'll get found out and when it gets found out, the, um, the outcome's far worse. Yeah. All right, now this is, I mean, I'm waiting for this one. I think this was a good one. Tell me something that you know is true but nobody agrees with you on. I know is true, but nobody agrees with me on. By nobody, do we mean the whole world or there's just a general, there's only a handful of people agree with me and there's a general consensus? Yeah, we can go for a handful of people. Yeah. I know that there are certain elements of the Dunning-Kruger effect in uh, sport in individuals that are very highly regarded in sport. Um, but there are plenty of people that disagree with me. Oh, that's a good answer. And I, uh, I like the cryptic nature of that one too. <laughs> there's, there's, the there are several, for, for all the people listening, the four of you that are going to listen, there are, there are several people in the industry who must be uh, relatives of Mr. MacArthur Wheeler. And if you don't know who MacArthur Wheeler is, go and Google him. I guarantee it's worth it. <laughs> Fair enough. Oh, mate. I'm going to Google that myself too. There'll be a few others. And the other two people, which will be my mum and probably your wife, will be Googling that. <laughs> no, she's, already said she's not listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What's the best mistake that you've made? Best mistake that I've made. And what did you learn from it? Blindly taking uh, certain people uh, at face value. And the lesson that I learned was make sure you get all your information before you make a decision. Okay, fair enough. And what do you think is the most significant event in the history of the human race? Most significant event in the history of the human race, besides COVID? <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> um. I think the invention of the computer. Yep. The computer itself or the internet? The computer. The computer. Because without the computer, there's no internet anyway. Uh, so if I have to pick uh, an individual that I think the planet probably owes the most to and probably the most underrated individual on the planet would be Nikola Tesla. Yep. yep. 
And how do you believe you've sabotaged yourself in the past five years? Oh, stubbornness. Pure stubbornness and obstinance. Um, so, and along with perhaps just being too honest for my own good. So there's been many lessons I've learned where uh, I've stuck to my guns and, and expressed my opinions where I probably didn't really stand to gain anything. I wasn't going to change outcomes or scenarios. All I really stood to do was probably just cause myself more more grief. Um, and through my own obstinance and stubbornness at times in not being able to, not being willing to um, compromise, I guess, my own set of standards um, has probably led to detrimental situations at yeah. times. Yeah. yeah. And where do you think you get your stubbornness from? What, what do you think, you know? That's a really strange one, I, mate. I, I don't know because I, I wouldn't say that my mum was a was an incredibly stubborn person. I, she's the one that raised us, and I would have to say that she was definitely more flexible than than me. Um, I, I think I I somehow instilled it in myself, mate. Um, yeah. Growing growing up, and then probably uh, traveling Europe by myself for an extended period of time. I think I sort of instilled it in myself, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I can blame anyone else for that. Did you think that's come over time or that's something that you've sort of learned that, that there you're, um, I mean, you have your opinion and that's what you're going to stick to? Or? I, think, I think it's, I wouldn't say it's like I have my opinion and that's what I'm going to stick to because as a scientist, I'm definitely the guy who quickly changes um philosophy if I'm presented with uh, a significant high quality amount of evidence the yep. acute to chronic workload ratio is a great example of that initially it was heralded as the you know the the great white um, hope of, of sports science and injury prevention but we've since learned that it itself was built on a house of cards and that the the application of it has been so misused that sports scientists and themselves much like myself get all tarred with a, a pretty conservative brush um, so I wouldn't say it's it's oh, I've got my opinion and that's it I just have a certain code if you yep. like that I adhere to and and if I meet other people that don't come anywhere near adhering to that code, then I just I find it difficult to be flexible with them. Yep. Um, so sorry, what was your original question? No, you've answered it. Where do you think the stubbornness came from and do you think that's developed over time? It's definitely developed over time. I don't remember myself being so obstinate when I was growing up. Yep. Um, I think it's been a gradual process of um, probably, yep, growing up, traveling the world and and to an extent i think a hell of a lot of it has come from nearly 15 years of continuous study because although it's been a double-edged sword that you've you've developed a really hearty ability to critically think and critically analyze evidence put in front of you and that's given you two things it's probably made me more obstinate in some ways and then in other ways it's made me under understand that science is always evolving and that there will always be new evidence. Um, but on the stubborn side, there are definitely always fundamentals that are 
well, no, that's absolute. That's just false. That's just yep. not wrong. That is, you, you've misinterpreted, um, you've misreported, or you're misrepresenting um, a particular ideal, and it's factually incorrect. So, I probably that's probably led to me being more stubborn in some areas, whereas the the ability to critically think has definitely also been developed over the last fifteen years, and and that ability to understand well what I thought five years ago based on that evidence base was true, I now know perhaps is not. And why you've got to look at a lot of emerging technologies and methodologies and, and training practices with a, with a little, um, don't treat them with a grain of salt, but you've kind of got to look at them tentatively because at the moment there might not be a great evidence base supporting them, but it doesn't mean that in five years' time that won't be won't a gold standard. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the accrued to chronic workload. Now, how did that, like you said, and that you've changed, your, I guess, your, your thoughts in and around that and that the, the evidence has come out that that may not be the way to do it. So how did that actually impact what you were doing? When you've obviously said, hey, this is the, uh, the gold standard that we're using and then sort of the evidence has come out that this is probably not what we need to do. And then so how did that change what you were doing as a sports scientist? It hasn't, it probably hasn't changed what I've been doing that much from one reason, and that's because I've um because I've I've kind of always spent the whole time learning and practicing across all different modalities of performance. Um, and I've always understood that every single scenario uh, that I'm looking at or considering or problem that I'm I'm trying to work on there's always going to be a hundred factors that lead into that. So if you're taking specifically an injury circumstance, well, uh, only, only the simplest of folk will sit there and pin down on one particular thing and believe that that is the single only reason that an injury occurred. We know that there's multifactorial. There's there's so so many many different factors that lead into any case of injury that, it doesn't matter how black and white a, a set of numbers or something might appear, there's still always going to be other factors, even if they only played a minor part. So I've never been uh, a baby in bathwater guy where I'm like, nope, this is it, this is what happened, this is why it happened, that's it. Yeah. But I've always, previously, I've always applied A to C ratios in monitoring to have a look and see, well, is there something that I need to investigate a bit further? Whereas nowadays... I have those numbers generating in the background, um, but unlike many individuals, I'm, I'm never going to sit there and say, oh, well, we have a number I don't like here, then we must throw the baby out with the bathwater. We're not going to do anything with that person now, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's it's definitely – it it's significantly down the ladder in terms of its importance in the decision-making processes yep. to, to the level that it once attained. Um, I still look at it, but do I use it um, as, as one of the sort of major talking points in a discussion? No. Um, what would be your favourite quote? Oh, it's got um, to be Einstein's, doesn't it? Um, definition of insanity, keep doing the same thing and expect a different result, hands down, number one. <laughs> All right, now, well, you've just mentioned Einstein. Would you rather be a worried genius or a joyful idiot? Uh, I'm not going to blow my own trumpet um, and say that I'm a worried genius, but 
I can be a bit stressy at times, uh, especially in a professional setting. Um, and other people may refer to me as being pretty well um, knowledgeable. And I've always looked at some of the idiots that I've met and gone, they look a fair bit happier than me. Um, <laughs> I like so take from that answer what you will. Yes, I like to think we need to have that, that that happy balance, I think, is what we need to look for. If I could switch on and off between the yes. two, that would be ideal. That's what I think we need to, we need to strive to be, they don't be yes. able to switch on and off. If I can turn the idiot on at times without needing 20 beers, then, um, yeah, that would be great. Nice. Now, if you were forced to eliminate every physical possession from your life except for what you could fit into one backpack, now this is going to go back to your backpacking, so you might have a few ideas on this anyway, (laughs) what would you put in it? So let's look at the stage of life that you're in now. Everything's got to go except for what you can fit into a backpack. What are you now, hang on a minute, mate. The other day you got me on social media trying to um, rouse suspicion in my uh, household on a social media post where I was asked the one thing I'd take to an island and I didn't indicate my wife, which <laughs> you drew her attention to. Let's just clarify here. We're not referring to living objects, no. animate objects as things. Correct. Correct. Okay. So my dog and my wife don't count. No. Um, you know, mates are all going to call you out on those sorts of things straight off the bat. And <laughs> I'm glad people don't actually see what our WhatsApp group goes you through our WhatsApp group. Well, it depends whether I'm going to have internet or not, mate, because if I've got Spotify, then it's going to have to be some sort of computer where I can have an entire library of death metal to listen to. Um, if not, then that would change things dramatically. But I would say a laptop. There's my homage to uh, the computer again. Yeah. Jeez, um, and after that, what else would I put in the backpack that I need? Um, oh, you know, a nice sleeping bag. Um, enough clothes. That'll be about it, mate. That's it. Yeah. As long as I've got, yeah. You wouldn't take out of your CD collection. Which CD do you think you would take? Oh, look, now that would be the most heartbreaking thing. That's why I asked if I can have a, a, a Spotify account and access to that because I'd have yeah. to leave that massive room full behind if I had to take one. How many CDs do you have? Do you actually know? Yeah, I think it's around 7,000. <laughs> um, would, I would say I'd, I'd have to take the first album I ever owned, a yeah. uh, number of the Beast by Iron Maiden. Nice work, nice work. Now, if you could take a single photograph of your life to represent your life, what would it look like? <laughs> oh, geez. be hard to get into one photo, mate, because I've, I've often thought of myself as almost a completely different human with each decade that I've um, lived so far. Yep. Um, the photograph, I guess, would have to contain... Probably that backpack, myself, my wife, and my dogs, and maybe dressed in a pair of uh, footy shorts and a death metal t-shirt. Death, yeah. I was waiting for the death metal shirt. I was actually going to say that. With, uh, with a with a with a Doc uh, Martin boots and ripped jeans. With a stubby holder and uh, and a and a and a cold one in the other hand. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm, if you could have credit for creating any piece of art, so either painting, a music, song, or a movie, what would you want? So you get to any I piece you, of uh, okay, so if it's a movie, I'm going to probably say Inception by Christopher Nolan because yep. most people don't get it. I think it's very well constructed. 
Uh, if I'm going to say a piece of art, I'd have to say um, uh, is it Scream by Edvard Munch. Because yep. um, if you look at it closely, it either looks like a howling, tormented soul or a dog with long ears. Uh, <laughs> uh, if it's a song, geez, I'm probably going to say maybe Hallowed Be Thy Name by Iron Maiden. Um, yep. Yeah, there you go. There's three. There's three. Beautiful. Now, you mentioned before, especially in your, your, your book title, that you're a bit odd. So on a scale of one to ten, how weird are you? Well, it depends on how weird you people think watching serial killer docos and listening to death metal is. I think I'm normal, but this is not what I'm told by other people. <laughs> if I'm if I'm rating myself, then I'm gonna say oh, I'm only a three or four on the weird scale. But I'm pretty sure you yourself and plenty of other people that know me might give me a seven or eight. <laughs> close, close. <laughs> <laughs> now, what kind of secret society would you like to start? Oh, let's say the death metal Illuminati. Yeah, filthy rich, never been able to be proven, um, and you're only allowed access if you have a true love, deep, profound love of of the art form. <laughs> so it's an art form now. And infiltrating world um, politics from the insidious background. Nice. Now, if animals could talk, which one would be the rudest? It's got to be cats, right? Like house cats, because they're just vermin <laughs> their attitude sucks not the big cats tigers lions and stuff fantastic but the average house cat got to be them i don't think they got anything nice to say about anyone <laughs> now are you afraid of being your true self around others when you meet them for the first time do you wear a metaphorical mask or do you wear your heart on your sleeve are you walking into a room full when of i music? very first meet them yep do you know what? That's funny. That that sort of ties into my um, my comment about being a different human in all four decades so far. I think if you got me in the first three decades of my life, I'd say, nah, you got warts and all from from day one. Yeah. Um, and if you didn't like it, whatever. I think more recently. Um, probably just due to the sort of um, studying at the very, very top level of academia and then working at the very sort of top level of sport, I've probably become a bit more guarded. Yep. So first meeting, you probably don't get the warts and all because I'm probably spending most of that time summing you up. And that doing the analysis uh, um, in the background. But, yeah, look, it's still as long as as long as long I've um, – assessed you against my code, um, you probably get the warts and all on the second or third go. Yep, fair enough. Right. Who would be in your ultimate punters club? So the knockabout larrikins, you know, blokes that you want to have a beer with. It can be Mate, you know, people I'm that you know. Mate, I'm not much of a gambler at all, but I will say if, if I'm to pick two people, uh, there's a physio at the Eels I used to work with who's a fantastic bloke and so obsessed with gambling that I hope by now he's good at it for his sake. <laughs> um, he'd have to be better at it than me. Well, let's and take then, the gambling out of it. Just folks that you want to ha- you want to be part of your tribe. Oh, right, so, if I want to yeah. hang with. Yeah. It doesn't so, matter whether they so can bet or not. Punter's Club is just, you know, that, that sort of 
code right. for hey we're we're going to punters club. It's just the boys you want to hang with, though. So, and, all right. So, it's, and yeah, it can doesn't be, matter if we're stone cold broke. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. And it can be movie stars, can be rock stars, can be whoever you want. Just people that you would be, you think would be your type of people. Oh, without, so I'm, I'm naming names now. Without a shadow of a doubt, um, uh, Mr. Donald Singe um, yep. would be one of the first picked on the boat. Uh, the Miracle Man, Mr. Ruben Ruzica. Uh, would be there. Um, my best mates who formed my wedding party, Richard Smith, Glenn Bellack, Israel Stevenson, from the famous fraternity. Oh, who would I like to meet? Who would who would be? Hmm. Someone occurred to me the other day, and now I can't think of them. Um, well, I tell you, if they're fictional characters, then there's a. Sh- there's a show at the moment, um, uh, Mr. Inbetweener, yep. um, with Ray for Mr. Inbetweener because, as Donald says, that he pretty much reminds me of you, so he'd be a clone of myself. <laughs> um, uh, other fictional characters that I'd love to have along. Uh, I don't mind Tommy Shelby from Peaky Blinders. Yep. Um, he'd probably be up there close. Um, and then... Yeah, there are. So I'd love to meet Al Pacino. I'd have him in my mix as long as he was willing to do a Scarface impression for me, <laughs> um, and probably a couple of couple of metal musos somewhere in there as well. Yeah, and I guess enough. I guess I'd have to bring, guess I'd have to bring my wife and uh, and and maybe if there's a little tugboat behind, I'll, I'd bring you. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm in the paddle boat. I'll be left behind <laughs> as jewel. That's fine. <laughs> Um, and now this is going to be interesting. What's your best motivational pump-up song? If you had to live it down to one. To one song? I couldn't really, mate. I couldn't. Uh, if, oh, if I, no, nah, right. If we, I know the, pick, we know the I'm genre. I'm only allowed one single for. song. Yeah. So we know be, what genre it would be. It would be, your it would be You Can't Bring Me Down by Suicidal Tendencies. Okay. Um, but there are definitely two bands that I've probably listened to more in the gym when I'm lifting than anyone else and it would be suicidal tendencies and hate breed last of all why do you refuse second best why do i refuse second best from myself or from others or just in general no just just in general your thoughts on when i give you that statement why do you refuse second best oh from my second from myself i refuse second best because i hope two reasons because I've still got to look myself and my wife in the mirror, uh, and we've well, got to look my wife in the eyes. Myself say, in, in the, the mirror. mirror. Where's your mirror? Um, and because I hope to have uh, at least a child sometime soon, and and to be able to to look them in the eye and and say that I never accepted second best, and in a in a sort of I guess the rest of the the sort of um, like professional settings and personal settings. Um, because life's too short to accept second best from the people in your circle, yeah. whether it's a professional circle or a personal circle. Uh, too short. You're not here for long enough to be deal to be wasting your time with people who don't aren't on the same page as you. Yeah, exactly. Last one before we go. What sport would be the funniest to add a mandatory amount of alcohol to? Now, take off the sports science is purely a hypothetical. No injuries. This is just a fun. What do you? Yeah. Surely it'd be speed skating. 
Speed skating. Surely it'd be speed skating. <laughs> you know, you have I at think, least one Stephen Bradbury every year. At least anything to do in winter sports, winter Olympics. A lot of those are just, you know. Or, or yeah, like snowboarding or something catastrophic where it was just gonna <laughs> going to lead to wholesale mass injury. <laughs> That's why we're taking the sports scientists and the coaches hat off it and all the <laughs> hypothetical questions. Now, what's the best way for people to reach out to you if they had any questions or they want to catch up with Mark Booth? What's the best way for people to reach out to you? Probably via email um, is is the best way to, to hit me up. I'm probably more likely to to get back to responding to an email than, than sort of social media posts or anything like that. Maybe one day I'll get someone to teach me how to use it properly, but um, I'm not as... Um, proficient in the area as yourself mick so <laughs> i would imagine via email boothy mate thanks for your time and awesome uh, mate we'll, we'll talk soon thank yep. you take care mick. thank you so much for listening to the kinetic collective podcast powered by play if you are looking to take your weight room or training facility to the next level you can't go past play play provides turnkey solutions from the ground up for any project whether it's your team's weight room or a state-of-the-art training facility. For more information, please visit play.global. If you've enjoyed listening, please give us a follow and ring the bell to get a notification for when we post next. Next.